Hey guys, it's Heidi. Can you believe it's been an entire year since we've started recording Wine Crush? We've heard so many amazing stories of the different Oregon winemakers. We would love for you to be part of our journey and leave us a review on iTunes. So not only do we know how we're doing, but so others can find us a little easier. Now on to the show. Stay tuned for Wine Crush, Northwest Wine Stories Uncorked. Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. Thanks for joining us here on Portland Radio Project. Today, host Heidi Moore will guide us through two stories of local winemakers. The first takes its name from a particular family heirloom, very special to the craftsman. The second draws inspiration from mythology and the fact that there's always something new to learn. Okay, we are talking with Ian Atkins from Flat Brim Wines today. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, quite the commute. Yeah, about five blocks. Perfect. I like that. So there's a reason for the name Flat Brim. Can you please explain to us the so-called tale of the hat? So, yeah, so when I was younger, probably like 12, I inherited this hat from my great-grandfather. For whatever reason, you know, when they divide all this stuff up, everybody wanted me to have this hat. So I took it, and it's a... Uh, you know what a LBJ hat is? Like the president LBJ had that light gray hat he always wore? No, apparently I need to watch. Google more. LBJ, it'll pop up. Okay, perfect. I'll do that. And it was a hat like that, but the brim had been flattened and it had been custom ordered that way that my great grandfather did because he worked on oil rigs. When you have it up, you can see a little better, was what I was told. Makes sense. Um, so I always had this hat. And, you know, I was playing in bands and stuff in my younger days. I always wore it and kind of like wore it out. It needed to be restored, but instead of that, I was going to have one rebuilt here in Portland. So when I took it to the hat shop and he was messing around with it, he's opened the lining and the original order card was in there, all the specifications. So he could build me like an exact duplicate of that hat. That's so cool when you find stuff like that. Yeah, but like a little modern twist to it. So anyways, I wear that hat with the flat brim and it's just nicer because it does what it's supposed to do, but keeps it out of your way. And that's my take on winemaking is like, I need to do what I need to do with this, but I need to stay out of the way of these grapes as much as possible. Makes sense. I like the um, the imagery and the everything that kind of went with that whole story. Um, you're originally from Texas, so you are not an Oregon wine native. No. How did you manage to get your way here? Just to do wine. We're in the restaurant business in Texas and got really into selling wine and got my SOM certificate and all that. You know, just my background and how I grew up, I really like working with my hands. So getting in the wine business seemed like that perfect, what people would call a dirty, dirty collar profession, where it's not really white collar, but you're not exactly blue collar. Like you get to work with your hands, but there's like an artistic component to it. It's like the perfect spot for me, career-wise. So we sold our restaurants in Texas and moved up here to pursue a you know career in the wine industry. How long ago was that? 2014. Not so, you've, so you've been here for a few years yeah. and have experienced the, the lovely winters and the beautiful summers. And what do you think the difference is between, you know, what you experienced in Texas and then what you're experiencing up here as far as the wine industry and everything that kind of went with that? Um, I mean, there was not a real large wine industry in Texas. You know, there's some really good producers, but it's a short list and they are 
kind of like islands into themselves. Like they have their own estate and they do everything themselves. And so it's not that it's not cooperative. It's just there's not a lot of opportunity. And so up here, because it's so much larger industry that you can buy grapes from farmers. You don't have to have your own vineyards. It's a lot more helpful because a lot of people are trying to do it at the same time. So it's a lot more cooperative. Uh, the community's bigger. So, you know, it, it's like it doesn't exist in Texas unless you have a lot of money to pull it off. And up here, it's a lot easier to get into. Yeah, makes sense. So we're going to talk about your wine. Um, and you had hinted to the fact on kind of what your styling is with the wine and how you like to make wine. So I want to talk about that shortly. Okay. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. So you've described yourself as an Americana winery and the styling that goes with that. I have not heard that term, so explain it to me. What does it mean and what do you compare it to? So I think right now there's this movement to make more refreshing wines and like lighter styles of wines than you'd normally find in America. And everybody equates themselves with something from France or Italy, like something old world. And I'm also making refreshing wines, but I definitely want to be distinctly like an American winery. So I went with like the term Americana, which describes like a type of music or maybe even art that's more simplistic. So that's the method that I'm using to make wines is trying to strip everything down to like its core elements that you know it's this wine, but it's also favoring refreshment and like drinkability over being complex. Makes sense. We've talked about this, but it's kind of refreshing to hear that, you know, with kind of a more simplistic approach to it that's drinkable that you can you can drink at every meal if that's really what you want to do. Not mm. that I'm going to drink red wine with breakfast, but you just never know. So you did bring us one of your reds, brought us your Dreamboat um, red blend. So tell us about that. This is the second time I've had it. First time I took it home and had it with steak, and it was phenomenal. Yeah, so this blend, what I'm working into is making like the swath. And the term swath is French for thirst. So like you say, like if a vin de swath is like a wine you drink when you're thirsty, you know, it's like a thirst quencher. So this is like a swath version of a wine called the Prisoner. You know what I'm talking about? Nope. People like to bag on this wine. So I don't get too controversial. Okay. There's a yes, company please called don't. Orin Swift that makes a, a wine called The Prisoner. And this wine is like, if you wanted to talk about heavy, with no statement of judgment here, just what it is. If you want to talk about heavy American style wines, this would come up. Interesting. Uh, for that idea. Like it's uh, like an archetype. So this is like the version that maybe if someone drank that, and you're trying to convince your friend to try this other new style of wine, you'd say, oh, you could try this from, you know, flat brim. It has those flavors, but it's just so much lighter. Yeah, it's really good. I really enjoy it. I mean, this is, again, the second time I've had it, and I would easily do another bottle. So I know you're doing something other than just reds. And because of your approach, you have some different stylings that you're doing with some different varietals. Let's run through those really quick. And because you also poured me uh, rosé, mm-hmm. wine that was... It was super cool. Yeah. So that's like another like American archetype. It's not necessarily like well-beloved was White Zinfandel. It was something that was made because the grapes were so ripe that they had to like take juice out of like, so they press these Zinfandel grapes and the sugars are way too high. It's going to, it probably won't even finish fermenting. It'll kill all the yeast. So they took some out and added water back in and it brings this alcohol. It'll make the alcohol level about, you know, 14%. 
So they had all this leftover wine. So what they did with that, and it hadn't had time on skins, so it was pale pink. They're like, oh, we're just going to market this as white Zinfandel. And they were stopping it early, so it was kind of like this real sugary... Like, even to say sweet on these earlier white Zinfandels, I think, is an understatement. They were actually, like, sugary, you could say. Like, so, when, it's stuff that you could buy, like, at a gas station, like, in a little bottle. Sure. Of white Zinfandel, it's a... Uh, Candy in a bottle. It's almost not, like, a wine... It's like a wine beverage. It's not really, like, a wine. It's almost like a wine cooler. Like, it's going into that. Again, not a statement of judgment, just saying what it is. <laughs> yeah. And so, the one I made is, like, a really extremely low alcohol, high acid... Those grapes, if you made it into a red wine, would have trouble getting all the way through the process because the acids are so high that it's hard to get some of the bacteria that needs to happen to happen. So it's just really like a, you know, thirst quencher, really light. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more wine, but next we're going to talk with Corey from Jackalope Wine. You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 in the heart of Portland and streaming worldwide at PRP.FM. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Let's move on to our next guest, Corey Schuster of Jackalope Wine Cellars. Thanks for joining us, Corey. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the question that everybody's probably wondering, what is a jackalope and why? Um... Long story short, it's a bunny with antlers. Um, to make that a little bit longer, it is a way to mess with people. I think it was a, a taxidermied creature created to mess with tourists. Um, and for me, that's how I got to know about the jackalope. I had a cousin uh, in Omaha, Nebraska growing up, and he would send me postcards, send me letters. He would come to visit and he'd say, hey, here's a jackalope. Come out to visit. We're going to go find these. And he was about 25 years older than I was, so um, he was a little intellectually above me. Uh, so I think I probably fell for it um, when I was a kid. So modern-day snipe hunt to a certain extent. Yes. Got yes, it. I would say so. With a rabbit. With a With rabbit. Horns. With horns. Got yeah. it. Okay. Um, so yeah, so he introduced me to the jackalope back when I was a kid. Uh, he ended up passing away when I was in eighth grade, but it was something that we had bonded over. It was just something that kind of stuck with me. Um, fast forward a bunch of years, lived in Denver for a while. Uh, when I quit my life there, got a big jackalope tattoo. Um, so it's just kind of this thing that's been with me growing up at these big changes that I've gone through in life. Uh, when I started the winery, I figured, well, I think a jackalope would look good on a bottle. Let's see what we can do and see how it works. So that's kind of the, the genesis of the jackalope for me. And truly, I mean, that's what got my attention when... I came across your your social media and whatever else. I'm like, who would put a jackalope on the bottle? I actually knew what it was. So, you know, I was above maybe some others with that. But Well, you know, where I grew up, sarcasm was kind of our first language. So when people come to me and they say, jackalopes, are they real or not? You know, my first instinct is to to kind of run with it and mess with them. But that's not a good sales tactic. So I have to kind of hold back on that. Um yeah, it's, it's a it's a fun little critter that I found a designer whose aesthetic I really liked. She took this ridiculous idea and made it look not cartoony and not silly. I really like kind of how she made the jackalope look not serious, but um, not to where you would look at it on the shelf and think, well, that's just kind of a ridiculous wine. It has a modern spin to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do enjoy when people tell me, well, that, you know, that looks more like a moose. That's not what jackalopes look like. I'm like, it's not real. Yes. <laughs> um, 
But yes, so I, how does I try to say how that. does has that affected your winemaking and then your wine style? Then you know, I think for me, what I'm trying to do with my wines, I want you know, at the end of the day, I'd like people to take the wines somewhat seriously. But it's also wine, so it should be fun. I want people to have fun with the wines, and the Jackalope has really come for me has come to be kind of that um, that fine line between silly and serious that I kind of wa- want to walk with the wines, where you know it's wine. Hopefully you enjoy it, but it's also got a jackalope on the label. So how seriously can I take myself sure. if that's you know if that's what I've got on the bottle? So that's that's kind of where I want the wines to be. I want them to be. I want you to enjoy them, but I want them to be fun. Like have fun drinking these things. And I know you had kind of hinted when we were talking originally um, how you came into making wine because again that wasn't your first line of defense out of college or out of mm-hmm. school to what you were going to want to do with your life. So if you have you know just. Tell us briefly kind of how you actually got to winemaking. So real quick, I've, and I'm going to steal this from a couple other people that have have coined this term for me. Um, they've called me the Craigslist winemaker. Um, <laughs> again, to kind of condense things, you know, I was a civil engineer for almost 10 years. The economy did its thing in 2008, and I was given the chance to try something new. And I spent a couple of years just kind of going through Craigslist and picking up any job that seemed interesting, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And one of those jobs ended up being for a small winery down near Salem. So I'm like, great, I can go work for a winery. That means free booze. Awesome. That'll help me, you know, get through this time of unemployment. But I really like the work. I love the industry. I love the people. Uh, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I love it. We're going to talk about your wine a little bit more in detail here um, in just a second. Thank you. Thank you. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. So you had mentioned how the jackalope reflects your styling and I know you're not just doing one varietal you're doing a rainbow of different things in small lots in the winery so tell us what you're doing tell us what's different I know we're drinking a Cab Franc today Mm -hmm. which is splendid by the way Um, but is not the normal that you know you expect to get from an Oregon winemaker yeah you know I kind of have a a rainbow of flavors if you will in my quiver Um, you know going back to you know how this should be fun you know we only get to do this once a year. So we have harvest once a year. So um, sometimes there's the uh, FOMO, if you will. Like, I just want to work with everything. A little fear of missing out. I'm like, okay, you need to define FOMO because I'm not really sure what that means. But thank you for doing that. You're welcome. Um, so, you know, almost every year I've done this, I've had a late season acquisition that I hadn't planned on where, you know, I said, this is what I'm going to make this year. And then harvest starts and somebody says, I've got these extra grapes, you should buy them. And I'm so excited at the time, like, yeah, of course, I'll take that. Why not? Um, And then the bills come in and then you sort of regret your decisions. But at the time, it's really great. So, you know, the first year I made Cab Franc and Pinot Noir and then added Viognier the following year. And then uh, things just kind of snowballed. Added Viognier uh, after that, Cab Sauve, Grenache, Syrah, I think that's everything I work with. I kind of forget everything I'm working with. Um, you know, a lot of it's Southern Oregon. Uh, you know, we have a lot of Pinot Noir. I love Pinot Noir. There's a lot of it up here. You know, I wanted to be able to offer a lot of other wines as well. One, because it's it's just fun to have different things to drink. But um, 
you know, from a sales perspective in the Portland market, it's great to have wines that are not Pinot Noir just to be able to like try to please everybody. For sure. I, I grew up a middle child. We want to make everybody happy. So that's what I'm trying to do with the wines. That's not technically what the middle child is known for. Oh, well, my family was. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've, I've got a bunch of different things. You know, Cab Franc is typically the wine that I make the most of. You know, I make it in uh, a couple different ways. I make it as a red, as a white, and as part of my rosé. I just love the grape. It's it's a lot of fun to work with and to drink. Um, you know, I kind of look at Cab Franc as sort of the the rustic, crunchy neighbor to Pinot Noir in a way, where Pinot is this beautiful, elegant wine. I'm not beautiful and elegant. I feel like I fit more the Cab Franc, where it's just it's like your your table farmhouse wine, um, just a little more laid back and crunchy. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I love the imagery. It always makes it so much more uh, colorful, I guess, when you're thinking about um, everything going on with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm really disappointed you didn't bring the white and the pink so we could taste I all the I do have colors. some of the pink in my bag. Oh, you had So we can break that out. You hadn't mentioned that yet. Can't give everything away right at the beginning. Wow. Prizes and secrets. That's what we do. So yeah, so that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm doing. You know, with, with these different offerings... Um, I make a lot of small lots of things, so I don't have, you know, a thousand cases of one different wine. I have 1,800 cases of like 10 different wines. So it gives me a lot of different kind of tools and toys to kind of play with. Sure. For me, I like it. I love when there is a rainbow of things to to choose from because there is a lot of Pinot, which is great. Um, you know, and there's some, you know, other varietals that are fairly heavy in the valley. So having something that's different is really fun to be able to go and taste and right. find um, and I do make Pinot. I forgot to mention that one. Probably a good thing to mention. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Um, what else do you, what are you looking forward to for this next year? Are you going to add something else to the arsenal? I did. Added Syrah this year. It wasn't part of the plan, but you know, it happened. Um, yeah, this year, a lot of rosé. Um, added rosé in the past has been two cabs, Cab Franc and Cab Sauv. Got a Grenache component this year, so that's going to be new. And Merlot. I'm releasing this year. Merlot is coming back. It's going to be the next big thing again. I've heard that. So I am. I don't know if that's true, but I'm going to keep saying it until sure, it is true. Sure, why not? It's, you know, a little brainwashing doesn't, you know, it goes a long way sometimes. Exactly. Yes. Perfect. Well, we're going to come back in just a moment and talk more wine. You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 in the heart of Portland and streaming worldwide at prp.fm. Okay, we are back with both Corey and Ian for this um, the next two segments, talking about some different things within, you know, the the city versus the the country as far as winemaking and some of the other things that you you guys do that are different. So we were talking a little city mouse versus country mouse a few minutes ago, and so I'm going to let you guys talk about the differences and the urban wineries versus you know things out in the valley that are more rural and how that affects wine and business. Yeah, the biggest thing is just the uh, cost of space. I mean, you don't see like a 15-story apartment building in McMinnville, it's, it's just easier to build out. Uh, so in Portland, like, the price per square foot is just so enormous that, like, everything has to be maximized. I think that's the biggest problem I've seen. People coming from the country to Portland to do stuff is they are not expecting to be constrained, like, in the physical sense as much as they were and really can't get past it. Like, it was a big – I've had, like, a, you know, 
seen a lot of people just move back out because they can't get over it. And the, they always want to work outside. I think when you're in the country, like, I want to go work outside. So you can't be in the parking lot doing this. The city of Portland's going to fine us if we're like dumping all this stuff into the parking lot. So it's going to go in the city water system. You know what I mean? Like run into the storm drain, you know, we're all going to be screwed and like you can't do it. Well, and you don't really think about that. And I've gone, I mean, knowing that the urban wine, wineries out in Portland, I didn't really even know they existed until we really started doing the podcast a year ago. And so walking into a facility and seeing eight people in a 2,000 square foot space playing Tetris during harvest and just day to day was amazing to me. And I'm not even making the wine. I just standing there watching it. And it's, you know, it's fun. I, you know, I started my first three vintages were in the, at this great little um, winery in the city. It was right on Southeast Division, which as anyone may know, it's a very, very busy location. And, you know, from an exposure point of view is awesome because you're right there. You've got tons of foot traffic. You're right in a neighborhood. Um, it was a great place to make wine for a few years. But on the other hand, you know, it's a smaller space. It's a little more costly because of the cost in the city. And you've also got people everywhere that are not necessarily mindful that there are forklifts that have to come around the area. And also you have to be quiet at like nine o'clock at night, which is great for part of the year, but during harvest, it's more of a challenge. So having moved out to the country now, you know, we can be on the forklift making noise until four in the morning outside and nobody cares. So it, it's kind of the opposite from what, you know, from what Ian is saying, going out into the country, it's, it's, I won't say it's a free-for-all, but it's a lot easier to uh, just kind of spread out to get things done. And it, I mean, it's interesting because we talked about it, you know, when we had coffee that day, you know, it's it's great having that space, but you're driving still from the city. So mm -hmm. even if you only have 20 minutes worth of work, you're driving two to three hours, mm -hmm. depending on traffic, to get out there to do that little bit of work. And it's trade-offs. You know, um, I could move out to McMinnville or Dundee. I don't see that happening, but, you know, I went from being able to walk to the winery, which was incredibly convenient and awesome, uh, to drive in an hour each direction. But as a result, you know, I can make noise all night long and nobody cares. Sure. We're in an industrial area, so we can go 24 hours and no one notices. So you got the best of both worlds. Yeah. yeah I had a hard time finding you. I, I think you were on the sidewalk waving me yeah. down because I could <laughs> not figure out where I was going. So that, I mean, even for a consumer and somebody that's looking to go wine tasting or doing something else, the city has a tendency to be a little bit, maybe a little bit more confusing to find the location because you are in a little bitty small area potentially versus out in the country, you can have a 20 foot sign. And I think um, from talking to different consumers, people that have come out tasting, a lot of folks don't realize you can have a winery without having a vineyard. And I think maybe that was some of the confusion early on with the urban wineries is people would be like, oh, how do you have a winery where you don't have a vineyard? You know, as Ian mentioned earlier, you know, we can buy grapes from different vineyards around the, all over the place. So, you know, we don't need a vineyard to be a winery. And, you know, I think being in the city has shown people there, you know, there are kind of different ways of, of doing this thing that we're doing. Yeah, I think it's great. And we're going to, I want to talk a little bit more about this. So let's put it on pause and we'll come right back. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. So we left off talking about sourcing grapes and how the confusion of being an urban winery or even a winery out in the valley that doesn't have a vineyard, the confusion what that is. So 
let's talk grapes. I mean, where are we getting grapes from? I mean, how common is that? I think it's a lot more common than people assume. They assume you have a big sprawling vineyard in your backyard. Yeah, I would say here in Oregon, it's really common, maybe in California even more so. But anybody you see that's an urban winery, they may have like a lease on a vineyard, but it'll be like a small percentage of what they're actually making. I think buying grapes is the more common form. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, for someone like myself who doesn't have investors, doesn't have partners, doesn't have the time, the knowledge or the money to have a vineyard, you know, it it allows me to still make wine by being able to buy grapes from different places. And I think it, I feel a little bit more nimble not having a vineyard so I can buy grapes from the Willamette Valley, from Southern Oregon, from the Gorge, from Eastern Washington. I can kind of pick and choose from all over the place, which is kind of fun. A little bit of mix and match. I couldn't grow everything that I make in one vineyard. It wouldn't all go. You could try. Probably wouldn't work very well, but you could try. Well, and you guys are buying grapes from completely opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, Corey's buying stuff mostly in Oregon from Southern Oregon. Ian's buying stuff from Eastern Washington. So why? Is that a styling choice or is that an availability choice? Availability and price. I was not going to make Oregon or Washington wine again, but all my distributors that buy from me are loving the prices. They're like, you know, they say like, you know, the better AVAs, you know, should say Willamette Valley, that's what sells. But, you know, it's all money always talks, you know, it's always the number one decider. So when they see those prices, they're like, no, just make that Washington wine again. So I ended up expanding what I'm doing in Washington. Interesting. And you're Southern Oregon. So why? Um, a lot of that was who I got to know early on. I made some good connections with Southern Oregon growers. I really like the fruit that I'm getting. And it's just, yeah, like I said before, when harvest comes and someone says, I got some extra grapes, you should buy them. A lot of that pressure on me has come from Southern Oregon. So it's, hey, we're already picking this for you. We'll just throw this on the truck and you can take this as well. Um, so that's kind of how that expanded for me. And you know, I started moving back into Washington a little bit more this year, you know, partly on price, partly on availability, and also just to kind of, to compare the two. Like I've done a lot of Southern Oregon work, but not a lot Eastern Washington. So I kind of wanted to see how they, how they compare. Sure. I got pushed out into Washington because I'm behind the Corey on the list of people that can buy these grapes. <laughs> he has a little bit of seniority over yeah, you. Yeah, he has seniority on me. So You're I taller though. I can't get him. <laughs> so I know I'll we make t- you a deal. <laughs> I know we talked a little bit about a custom crush winery versus a bonded winery. And we only have a little bit of time left, but I want you to kind of cliff note that a little bit just because it is interesting because no one would ever think about that. And probably nobody cares, but I do. I think it's super interesting. All right, I'll go. You took too long. Um, So we're both operating kind of differently where I'm a custom crush client. So the space I'm in is owned and bonded by somebody else. And essentially I'm paying her rent to be able to make my wine there. So legally, all of my wine is hers until it's until I pay taxes on it, and then I take possession of it. But it's a way for me to make wine and not have to do all the paperwork. Yeah, makes sense. So I'm a bonded winery, and I actually rent out space to two other winemakers in my space. But instead of custom crust, there's a third option called associate producers or alternating proprietors. It's called, yeah, alternating proprietorship. And it's basically like I own all the equipment, but they do their own reporting. They have their own, like, we have, like, lines drawn on the floor of where they can be in the space. And they're essentially, they have their own bond. 
Got it. So, so they it's do their little, own reporting. I don't. It's do a little bit more formulated for then, as far as like spatially and, and yeah, everything. Yeah, it's else. really formal. Interesting about where you can be in the space. Thank you, Corey and Ian, for joining us and telling us the stories about the wineries. And where again can we buy your wine? Everywhere fine wines are sold. All the time. They're everywhere. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for the fourth episode of Wine Crush Season 2. Have a great weekend, and we will see you at the bottom of the glass. Mm